Dear listener, welcome again. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast up to episode 311. Something a bit different for you this time instead of the normal panel discussion. I just thought it was time to do a little talk on climate change, a bit of a 101 on climate change. So I don't have the normal panel, but Joe, the tech guy, was sitting at his computer twiddling his thumbs anyway, so he's joining in. And so Joe is there. He'll chip in as necessary. Thank you, Joe. And, And I'll do a bit of a solo spiel or with Joe's help and and try and explain to you my understanding of climate change and basically give you a bit of a 101 of what it's about and the typical arguments and the basic stuff that you need to understand about climate change when you are sitting at a dinner party and somebody starts mouthing off as a climate change denier and you want to have a few facts and figures and some arguments ready for you. So... So that's what tonight is about. It's climate change and some of the ins and outs. And by I'm no I'm no expert by any means, but I'll do my best to give you a bit of a run through in the important bits. If you're in the chat room, say hello. And already we've got Watley the Wizard. G'day, Watley. Good to see you there. So, so yeah, climate change. So, okay, when thinking about, well, actually, you know, we really should apologise because we've reached 311 episodes of this podcast and really haven't discussed climate change until now. So it is one of the major, you know, things that we should have spoken about, and it's quite an oversight to have not have spent some time on it. So apologies for that. We'll make up for it a little bit tonight. And we'll I, I, make... I think we need some Satanist chaplains to help console us with the, the, yes. the existential dread of climate change. That's it. And for some forgiveness, I need to go to confession and flagellate myself or something like that. So... So anyway, and we'll definitely do a bit more on climate change than we have in the past. So once we've got this one under our belt, hello to Daniel. He's in the chat room as well. So look, climate change. Okay, let's face it. There are climate change deniers out there and there's a lot of them. And and they seem to fall into the same sorts of people who would be anti-vaxxers and who would say lockdowns don't work and who would say that... 5G is either dangerous or it's a plot to control our minds. People who are into conspiracies are into this sort of thing and and sort of denying that climate change is man-made and is a problem, or, or at least man-made, is certainly a common thing out there. I'll tell you what, though, with the anti-vaxxers, they are becoming so mainstream. Like, when I tune in and watch the premiers with their daily talks about the latest COVID numbers. If you do that, uh, if you watch that on a Brisbane Times Facebook feed or, heaven forbid, a Sky News Facebook feed, the comment section there by the anti-vaxxers, it's insane the level of people who are denying vaccinations and claiming all sorts of things about them. So uh, they're not a fringe group anymore. They're like becoming mainstream, but... Anyway, I digress. We're talking about climate change in this episode. So, you look, one of the things with with climate change, vaccinations, lockdowns, etc., is people feel that they can do their own research and figure it out for themselves. And as part of all this, I came across a, a website, Skeptical Science, and it had a good little section about doing your own research, which I think is worth mentioning at the beginning here before we get too far down the track. So the phrase do your own research seems ubiquitous these days, often by those who don't accept mainstream science or news. 
conspiracy theorists, and many who fashion themselves as independent thinkers. And on its face, it seems legit. What could be wrong with wanting to seek out information and make up your own mind? And as this web's Excuse me, as this website says, the problem is with doing your own research, that's not what research is. Like, when scientists use the word research, they mean a systematic process of investigation. Evidence is collated, evaluated in an unbiased, objective manner, and those methods have to be available to other scientists for replication. These days, when people say that they're doing their own research, they mean they're using a search engine to find information that Conform, confirms what they already think is true. So bear that in mind next time you hear somebody say, do your own research. Googling away in your own bubble is not research. So science is a process. It's an attempt to understand reality and recognise how biased and flawed the human brain is. So real research is about trying to prove yourself wrong, not right. So the other thing, of course, in all of that is you're not as smart as you think you are. Unless you're an expert in a field you're researching, you're almost certainly not able to fully understand the nuance and complexity of the topic. So experts have advanced degrees, they've published research, they've got years of experience, they know the body of evidence and the methodologies, and they're aware of what they don't know. So experts can be wrong, but they're much less likely to be wrong than a non-expert. So... Thinking one can do their research on scientific topics such as climate change or mRNA vaccines is to fool oneself to some extent. So the information's available, but it doesn't mean you've got the background knowledge to understand it, so you need to know your limits. So ultimately, knowledge is a community effort. We don't think alone, and that's what makes humans a successful species. We build off what other people are expert in. So... That's why for anyone who isn't an expert in a particular field, our best chance at knowledge is to trust what the majority of experts in that area say is true and then no research is involved. So unless you're an expert, there's a good argument for trusting what the majority of experts in an area say is true if there's a clear and strong consensus. So in my little talk this evening, I'm not about to try and paint for you the opposite picture of of, of the of the mainstream view. I'm just going to give you the mainstream view. If you want to find the try and waste your time on the opposite view, go ahead. So really, what is the consensus when it comes to climate change? What do our scientists say? And again, from this same website, Skeptical Science, they give a good explanation when they say science achieves a consensus when scientists stop arguing. So initially when the question was asked, what would happen if we put a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there may have been many hypotheses about what's going to happen. But over a period of time, the ideas are tested and retested and the process of the scientific method, because all scientists know that... Rep uh, beg your pardon. So over a period of time, each idea is tested and retested. That's the processes of the scientific method. And scientists try and get it right, try and get it right because... That's how you get a reputation. So the ones that don't pan out will fall by the wayside. The ones that work out and make sense survive amongst the hypothesis. And so there's no... Consensus in science is different from a political one. There's no vote. Scientists just give up arguing because the sheer weight of consistent evidence is too compelling. And that's what we've reached when it comes to climate and the consensus that... 
our our planet is warming and that warming is caused by humans. So there's a link here in the show notes, which is there were authors of seven climate consensus studies and the names are all there and they each had done their own studies about what is the consensus among scientists and they came up with 100%. Three of them came up with 97%. Actually, four of them said 97%. One said 93% and the other one said 91%. Individually, they came up with that as the, as the consensus view on climate change and they then wrote a joint paper and the conclusions were that somewhere between 90 and 100% of experts agree that humans are responsible for climate change, with most of the studies finding 97% consensus. Interesting to note Hmm. that when science is unsettled, the argument takes place in scientific forums. Right. When, When one side has lost it moves to the mainstream media because they fail to convince their colleagues. The only people they convince are the lay people who have no knowledge. And so if the conversation is happening in the, the press or on the social media, it means that the scientists already know what the answer is and this person hasn't managed to convince his colleagues, his peers. That's true. That's that's a good way of looking at it. So I've got on the screen... Listen, if you're listening to this podcast, the audio version, this, and you sometimes watch the video version, this might be an episode where it's worth watching the video version because there will be a few charts and graphs to put up. So one of the other things that they said in their joint report was that the greater the climate expertise among those surveyed, the higher the consensus on human-caused global warming. So there's a chart there that basically shows that the more expert people were amongst the experts, then the more likely they were to agree on uh, human-caused global warming. So that's, a, you know, realistically, when we look at COVID and the, and the disputes we've got amongst experts as to all sorts of things to do with COVID, if we look at these figures of 97%, that's a pretty high and strong figure in the scheme of things. And we've really reached the point in life, haven't we, where it's almost impossible to expect 100% agreement on things. So 97% is pretty strong consensus. So, so, so yeah. So basically my first argument was do your own research is really limited if you're not an expert. You can fall for some pretty big traps and for most people relying on a strong consensus of experts is the most sensible thing to do and the strong consensus of experts is that we've got human caused global warming going on so we'll get into you know the the reasons and the arguments and the facts and all the rest of it but that's a good starting point as to as to kicking off this discussion so right by the way so those who are opposed to taking action to curb climate change have engaged in a misinformation campaign to deny the existence of the expert consensus, and they've been successful. And the public badly underestimates the expert consensus. So apparently only 16% of Americans realise that the consensus is above 90%. So there we go. All right. So with That's all that, changing. What's that, Joe? 
That's changing. Limited News is changing their tune. Limited News is changing their tune. Yeah, yeah. Murdoch Press. Yes. I'm now going. I'm now going to spruik yes. human-induced climate change. Yes. Why are they doing that? I, I'm I'm not fully across that story, but that's only come out in the last day or two, hasn't it, Joe? It has. Yeah. Is it because of some government inquiry about them or something like that? Do they feel they're under threat in some way? Well, or is it because there's a change, there's a handover from the old guard to the new guard? Oh, okay. So, yeah, they've come up with some statement, haven't they, that sort of made that clear, which is a strange thing, yeah. a strange thing to have to Car- do. Carbon zero before 2050, I think, they're supposed mm-hmm. to be sorting. Okay. Well, with the Murdoch press on board... Who knows what's possible? But at the moment, only 16% of Americans realise that the consensus amongst experts is above 90%. Right. So I'm no expert, of course. You've gathered that. And I'm not going to try and prove climate change is wrong. I'm not going to waste my time on that. I'll just give my understanding of the consensus view and the reasoning behind it. And, And really, I'm just sort of looking at, you know, if you're at a dinner party, People still have those things and there's somebody mouthing off who's a climate sceptic. You'll have a few bits of arguments and information up your sleeve that you can that you can use. So, so right. So one of the things that kicked me off is, and I've got some information, I'll be drawing on two sources for what I'll be talking about in this episode. One is a book called Climate Change, What Everyone Needs to Know, second edition by Joseph Rom and... Look, his credentials are pretty good and it's on the back of his book where he's been involved in a lot of stuff to do with climate change science and finishes off. He's a senior fellow at the Centre for American Progress and he holds a PhD in physics from MIT. Like, he's a smart guy and seems knowledgeable on the topic and a lot of his stuff is referenced. The other thing that I'll be drawing on, of course, is the... IPCC report. So this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change who just came out with their 2021 report. So that's really the sort of two sources that I'm going to be relying on. And oh, who we got in the chat room? Watley the Wizard, Hairy and Financially Solvent. (laughs) That's a great name. I'll let you read all that stuff, Joe. I'll get too distracted if I get into that. You're singing out if there's stuff that I should that I should know about, okay? Please help, Joe. Okay, here's one of the things right from the get-go that I didn't understand about climate change and this whole idea of a blanket. And I can remember Dr. Carl talking on a podcast and it was about how energy would bounce off the Earth's surface and would hit this sort of greenhouse gases and then bounce back to Earth and, and warm us up more than we were before. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, if we've built up all these particles in the atmosphere that are blocking the heat from leaving the Earth, surely those same particles would have blocked the heat arriving on the Earth at the same time from the sun. So wouldn't they have been reflecting away from us as much as reflecting heat back into us? It's what I was sort of thinking. I just couldn't get my head around it. And... I was talking to Joe in the chat room. Joe, what did you say beforehand, Joe? What were you saying about... If you go into a greenhouse, or possibly a better example that we've all had, is if you go and sit in a car, even on an overcast day, you know how much hotter it gets inside than outside. 
Yes. And and you can feel the sun's energy heating up the car. Yes. Uh, and not escaping. Yes. So the heat manages to come through the glass of the windscreen or the greenhouse inside and then doesn't bounce out in the same level. Some is trapped within. And so how does that work in terms of the greenhouse gases? The sun's peak intensity is visible light. Of the solar energy hitting the top of the atmosphere, one third is reflected back into space by the atmosphere itself and by the Earth's surface, the land, the ocean, and it seems especially the ice being white and highly reflective. So visible light coming from the sun, one third of it bounces back into space as the rough calculation. So the rest... As an aside, mm -hmm. the amount of energy is equivalent to four Hiroshima atomic bomb detonations per second or 7.4 quadrillion kitten sneezes per second. <laughs> You've got too much time on your hands, Joe. <laughs> As an aside, uh, that's good. Okay, so one-third bounces back. The rest is absorbed mostly by the, by the Earth, especially our oceans, and this process heats up the planet. But the Earth re-radiates the energy it has absorbed, mostly as heat, in the form of infrared radiation. So it re-radiates this infrared radiation outwards. So some naturally occurring atmospheric gases let the visible light escape through to interspace while trapping certain types of infrared radiation. These greenhouse gases, including water, methane and carbon dioxide, trap some of the re-radiated heat so they act as a partial blanket that keeps the planet as much as 60 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it otherwise would be, which of course is normally ideal for us. So visible light comes in, one-third bounces off, two-thirds gets absorbed, the Earth re-radiates infrared radiation, that hits the greenhouse gases, the gases which allow the visible light to transfer through don't allow this infrared to transfer through as easily and then bounce it back to Earth. That's how it works. So climate science predicts, so if you accept that theory, the prediction is that if the warming is caused by an increase in greenhouse gases, we expect the lower atmosphere, the troposphere, to warm up, the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, to cool, and the boundary between them, the tropopause, to rise. And all of that has been observed. So if, for instance, recent warmings were due to increases in the intensity of radiation from the sun, then in addition to the troposphere, the stratosphere should be warming too, which is not happening. So for people who are climate change deniers, you have to, at your dinner party, talk to them about the the, the lower atmosphere, the upper atmosphere and the middle atmosphere and say, well, whatever alternative theory you may have, if you simply say, oh, the sun must be stronger at the moment, that's what's causing the planet to heat up, then you would say, well, can you explain to me why the upper atmosphere is actually cooler and cooling? If, if what you're saying is true, that doesn't make sense. So 
the sort of theory of this climate science neatly explains what's actually happening in these atmospheres. So I thought that was uh, interesting. Joe, given your knowledge of cat sneezing and Hiroshima bombs, you were probably all very, or you were aware of those levels in the atmosphere already, were you? Haven't told you anything uh, Yeah, there is a really good UQ online course which goes into the science of climate change and how we know this. Right. Uh, and that was one of the things it discussed, along with carbon-14 isotopes or carbon isotopes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're touching on that. But as a fossil carbon rather than the forestation? Yes. yes, I'll get to that. Okay. Alrighty. So, so satellites measure less heat escaping out to space at the particle wavelengths that carbon dioxide absorbs heat, thus finding direct experimental evidence for a significant increase in the Earth's greenhouse effect. So if less heat is escaping to space, where is it going? Well, it's going back to the Earth's surface. And surface measurements confirm this, observing more downward infrared radiation. A closer look at the downward radiation finds more heat returning at carbon dioxide wavelengths, leading to the conclusion that this experimental data should effectively end the argument by sceptics that no experimental evidence exists for the connection between greenhouse gas increases in the atmosphere and global warming. So again... If somebody wants to deny climate change, you need to say, well, here's what the evidence is. Explain to me how a hotter sun be the explanation given those changes in those different atmospheres. Right. A couple of other bits of information. Carbon levels. So a lot of this stuff with climate science is done particularly with temperatures and things, it's, it's kind of a comparison to our pre-industrial years. So they look back 250 years quite often. So at the dawn of the Industrial, Revolu- Industrial Revolution uh, 250 years ago, the uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was approximately 280 parts per million and <coughs> it now exceeds 400 and uh, they can specifically measure the type of carbon that's building up in the atmosphere. And they know it comes from the combustion of fossil fuels as opposed to other sources such as deforestation. So, so that's quite compelling as well that this increase in carbon uh, dioxide is from fossil fuels and where the reason fossil fuel carbon is being released in the atmosphere. It's pretty clear. So, so we've got us as the cause of the carbon entering the atmosphere and we've got this evidence of, of what's happening with temperatures in the atmosphere. And we'll get on to evidence of temperatures happening on Earth. Now, before all that, though, a sceptic might say, well, there might be other reasons why the planet is warming. That might not be the only reason. It might explain some of it, but there could be other factors involved that are causing the warming. And so, but according to the science, the other factors that might affect global temperature at this particular stage in their cycles should actually be cooling the earth rather than heating it. So one of those would be sun activity. So the sun doesn't stay at a, at a constant energy level. It goes up and down in sort of approximately 11-year cycles. But in recent years, we've actually seen the deepest solar minimum in nearly a century. 
according to NASA, as they explained in 2009. So we've had unusually low levels of solar activity that would otherwise be cooling the Earth. So, so I will bring up a chart on for those who are able to see it. And what you've got is uh, a temperature 11-year average is the red line going up dramatically and you've got solar energy essentially the blue line down the bottom which in the last uh, since the 1960s leveled off and around 2000 actually decreased so it's not possible to blame increased solar energy as the cause of our global warming scientists have measured it and that's not what's happening what's some other reasons <coughs> do you notice when i talk solo my voice actually dries out quicker i've got to take more water than when I'm with the other guys. You need some Robina. I do. Okay, one other reason, volcanic activity is, is sometimes a cause, but in recent decades, volcanic activity has released particles that partially block the sun and also serve to cool the planet slightly. So the volcanic activity would not have contributed to the warming. And the other possible influence last but not least, is, is the orbit of the Earth around the Sun and the way that the planet wobbles around its axis as well during that orbit. So the orbit changes, gets closer and further away from the Sun, and then the, the planet sort of wobbles in different ways as it goes around as well. And there's a bit of a correlation between the, the orbit of the Earth and ice ages over time. It's not... The only cause of ice ages, there are other factors, particularly carbon build-ups as well, but it is, it certainly has, seems to have some effect. Now, according to ice cores from Antarctica, over the past 400,000 years, it's been domi dominated by glacials, so cold periods, ice ages. That, now, they normally last about 100,000 years, and it's been punctuated by interglacial short warm periods which typically last about 11,500 years so so normally ice age of 100,000 years and a nice warm period of about 11,500 years and and our current nice warm period our current interglacial called the Holocene it's already been going 12,000 years so some people might say well, if a new ice age is imminent, maybe it's a good time to be warming the planet. And so let me just see here, just see. So what are the conditions like? So at the moment, the Earth should be cooling slightly, but the current factors of orbit and tilt are very weak and they're not acting within the same time scale and they're out of phase by about 10,000 years. So their combined effect would probably be too weak to trigger an ice age. So we've got quite an unusual combination of orbit and tilt at the moment that would mean we're not normally, we're slightly cooling, or we should be slightly cooling, but not entering an ice age. And a similar sort of combination of orbit and tilt happened 430,000 years ago, and they had a nice warm period lasting 30,000 years. So we're in that sort of range at the moment. So 
according to the orbit and tilt of the Earth, really we should be slightly cooling, but really not very much, and we should be really enjoying a, a nice interglacial period of a 30,000 years rather than the normal 11,500. So without human interference, uh, because of the orbit and tilt, there should be a slight cooling. So essentially, the sorts of things when people say, well, we don't know whether the warming is caused by humans or whether it's caused by other factors, when you look at the other factors, sun activity, volcanic action, and the orbit and tilt of the Earth, all those factors are actually pointing to a cooling rather than a heating. So, yeah, you got anything, to, Joe, to add to that that you're aware of? In terms of factors, no. Are you going to cover off the amount of human-released carbon? Yeah. Compared to natural, I don't know if I am. I have to go through my notes here, Joe. Let me see, how, see what happens as I go through them <laughs> and see if it covers what you're talking about. Actually, maybe this next chart will, will do it, I think, actually. So... <coughs> Let's look at amplifying effects. So I'm going to bring up a chart here. Let me just share that on the screen. And this is a temperature for the past 420,000 years. And it's basically showing peaks and troughs as temperature rises and falls for the last 450,000 years. Isn't it amazing that scientists can actually gather this data? It's quite incredible. Think about it. And what you notice is that when the Earth warms up, when temperatures increase, it really increases very quickly and quite dramatically. Like it's a really sharp, almost vertical line that just climbs up, hits a peak, and then the, the cooling is a much more gradual step ladder, a step-down approach over a longer period of time. So... So over the last 450,000 years, as you look at the fluctuations in temperature, basically there are these really, really sharp, quick spikes of an increase in temperature and then a more gradual drop-off down to get to the lower temperature and then another big spike. So that also matches up with CO2 concentrations as measured at the time as well as quite a strong correlation between carbon dioxide and temperatures, which is on the next chart that I've put up as well. But just going back to that first one, where you look at how quickly the temperatures rise and what that tends to indicate is that events happen really quickly when there's initial warming, that there is an amplification effect is possible where things get a really quick roll on and accelerate for some reason. There are other there are factors that must come into play that accelerate the warming that don't sort of come into play so much to accelerate the the uh, the cooling, if you like. So let's get that off so you can look at me. So data reveals over time, last 450,000 years, that when an initial warming is triggered by an external force, such as orbital change, the planet can warm up fast. That in turn implies that the climate system has strong amplifying feedbacks which turn a small initial warming into a large heating fairly quickly. So what are these possible amplifying feedbacks? And this comes from the book I mentioned before, Climate Change, if everyone needs to know, by Joseph Rom, And he said one of the big ones is 
as sea ice and land-based ice shrink, this causes a decrease in the Earth's overall reflectivity, which leads to more absorption of heat, especially in the polar regions. So that makes sense. Start to lose that ice, get less reflection off the ice, more absorption. Another key rapidly acting amplifying feedback is driven by water vapour. As the planet starts to heat up, evaporation increases, which puts more water vapour into the air. And guess what? Water vapour is a potent heat-trapping greenhouse gas, like carbon dioxide. Basic physics tells us that a warmer atmosphere is able to hold more moisture at a rate of approximately 7% increase per degree Celsius. So we'll get into some figures later. Since the industrial age, the temperature has risen by about a degree. That means that our atmosphere is holding about 7% uh, more moisture as a result. Another sort of amplifying feedback is climate change leads to more forest fires and you get carbon dioxide released by burning trees. And a fourth one that he likes to emphasise in this book is the thawing of permafrost can also release additional carbon dioxide and methane. So methane is an interesting one. Compared to carbon dioxide, as a heat-trapping capacity, it's 34 times stronger than carbon dioxide over a 100-year timescale. It's actually, it seems like it disappears from the atmosphere a lot quicker. Over a 20-year time frame, methane is 86 times stronger. Uh, a large part of the difference is that the atmospheric lifetime of methane is approximately 12 years, whereas carbon dioxide is a lot longer, but very much stronger in terms of trapping heat. And so methane is a big problem that we have to be concerned with. And this guy in this book talks about methane being released from the permafrost. And he's a little bit, he notes apparently the IPCC report, Joe, they don't really take into account the methane being released from the permafrost as an amplifying effect as much as, as this guy likes to. So have you heard much about methane, permafrost, anything like that? Yeah. So I think lots of Siberia, they're saying the permafrost is thawing. Mm. And, and there's big concerns that um, large amount of methane will be released very, very soon. And also I think there are some big holes appearing in parts of Siberia. Hmm. I think I read somewhere where the methane was escaping so quickly that, that the frost was not freezing over during winter because of just so much movement of methane. And I think I saw images of, of like a permafrost on fire not so long ago. So there's a lot of methane in there to be released and it's dangerous in terms of its heat trapping capacity. Okay, other things to be aware of, severe precipitation. So we seemed, it seems anecdotally as we look around that, well, actually, it's a matter of fact, really, the worst deluges of rain have jumped, not merely because warmer air holds more moisture that in turn gets sucked into major storm systems. Climate scientists have explained that climate change is altering the jet stream and weather patterns in ways that can cause storms, storm systems, to slow down or get stuck, thereby giving them more time to dump heavy precipitation. So when it rains, it pours literally. So that's one of the things that scientists are looking at is that this climate change is causing a change in the, in the Northern Hemisphere in particular because of the jet stream changing. And 
and these weather patterns getting stuck and hovering over areas much longer, whereas in the past they would move on, so causing more damage, greater deluges of rain. That's what happened in America a few mm. years back with a polar vortex. Mm -hmm. And mm. so the weather systems, the jet streams moved mm. and there was a large surge of Arctic air that moved down over central North America. Mm. And they had very, very cold temperatures because of that. Yes. So shifting that cold air down because of the move in the jet stream and the jet stream also changing such that these systems don't move on sometimes like they normally would. An interesting one is snow. So when it's cold enough to snow, snowstorms will be fueled by more water vapour and thus be more intense. So you may have heard of the saying, it's too cold to snow. If it's very, very cold, then there is too little water vapour in the air to support a heavy snowfall. So we've known for a long time that warmer than normal winters actually favour snowstorms. So Arctica is considered a desert mm -hmm. because it is so cold that it doesn't snow. There you go, yeah. So there's very little precipitation there. So cold it can't hold the moisture, yeah. So, so according to this theory, what we'll find is at the beginning and end of winter, it will be slightly warmer and you'll get rain will result instead of snow. However, during the middle of winter, the extra water vapour in the atmosphere that is now cold enough to create snow will mean you'll have larger snowstorms will be developing. So here's a tip for you, dear listener, if you get nothing else, if you're booking ski holidays over the next century, um, book it for the middle of the season, not for the shoulder beginnings or end periods and you'll be fine in terms of your skiing at least so so where am i up to that's what we know there now i'm going to move on to the so that's a lot of the, sort of the theory of climate science and and what we think happens and the intergovernmental panel on climate change came out with a report it was their sixth assessment report and it provides a high-level summary of the understanding of the current state of the climate, including how it is changing and the role of human influence and the state of knowledge about possible climate futures. So a bit of a summary of where we're at. That's what's the IPCC report. So what did it say about the current state of our climate? It said that each of the last four decades has been successfully warmer than any other decade that preceded it since 1850. And global surface temperature was 1.09 degrees higher in 2011 to 2020 than it was in 1850 to 1900. A lot of these comparisons, again, are with this sort of 1850 to 1900 period, this pre-industrial period. So we're about a degree Celsius uh, warmer in our global surface temperature over land it's even more so, it's 1.59 as opposed to the ocean, which is 0.88. I'm giving you these figures, there's actually a range and I'm giving you the sort of the mean when I'm giving you some of these figures. So, and they're saying that they think that basically all of that is to do with human-induced causes. Let's see, one, one degree doesn't sound like much, does it? But let's bring up another chart, which we'll try and put that into context. So on the screen, 
is another chart and this goes back 2000 years and basically see the changes in yep, global surface. Baby Jesus on the left. Is it, but yes, <laughs> that's right. Baby Jesus on the left and 2020 on the far right. And you'll see that there's a band of temperature variations and essentially the temperature change that we've had right at the end is this crazy, ridiculous spike that's just come out of nowhere in comparison with the trend line of the previous 2,000 years. Can you turn that into present or uh, presentation mode instead? Yeah, I can make it. Here we go. That's the best I can do. How's it sound? Or even... Okay, that... Andrew was asking. Right. Okay, Andrew, full screen at Trevor, and that's the best I can do, I think. So, so you can see that the band of global surface temperature changes are fairly consistent, actually going down a bit, and then this crazy spike at the end is where we currently are. So one degree is a lot. So by the way, show notes on the website, ironfizzvelvetglove.com.au, you'll see a PDF will appear where all this stuff can be accessed. So, so yeah, so that's one degree since 1850, so till now. And most of that is attributed to carbon monoxide, but a fair proportion of that is attributed to methane. On the positive side, we did quite well with sulfur dioxide, where we reduced that and we would have had some cooling as a result. So that's in relation to aerosols and things like that. So we have actually done some things right. In fact... Joel mentioned we also get changes in ocean currents. Yes. And there's concern about the... There's a global ocean circulation which takes heat away from the equatorial regions and moves it up towards the polar regions. Right. The most well-known, obviously, being the Gulf Stream. Right. Yep. And with the melting sea ice you get a desalination or a watering down of the saltiness of the ocean, mm -hmm. which interferes with the flow of the water currents. Mm. And that will actually make the equator warmer and the poles colder. Uh, okay. But it seems to be that there's an amplifying effect that the Arctic in particular is warming up faster than anywhere else on the planet, it seems. And that's because the ice is melting there and a, a few other factors. So there's a range of things happening, isn't there, all interplaying amongst themselves? There is. Mm. And the concern is that any one of these could suddenly tip us over, as you showed with mm. the, the warming, the forcing, mm. could tip us over a catastrophic edge. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of complicated things that interplay and one could accelerate and cause all sorts of amplifying factors. So... Didn't read that one about the sea currents, but I might, I haven't finished the book yet, but I might get, I might find something there. So, anyway, carbon dioxide and methane are responsible for a fair bit of the, a fair bit of the global warming. And we did quite well in terms of reducing nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxide. So, we've done some good things. Okay. Also, just in terms of carbon levels, so in 2019, the atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations were higher than at any time in at least 2 million years. We can say that with statistically high confidence. And concentrations of 
methane and into what's that? Nitrous oxide into a what that would be nitrous oxide. I uh, think. No, it must be no, nitrous, nitrous oxide. oxide is NO. I think what's NTO? N two O. Sorry, nitrogen dioxide. Would it be? I don't know. Uh, that no, it is nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide. Okay. NTO. They were higher than at any time in at least eight hundred thousand years. So CO two currently higher than any time in the last two million years, and methane and nitrous oxide higher than at any time in at least the last 800,000 years. So it makes you what? Sorry, Joe. Makes you laugh, doesn't it? Yeah, it causes pause for concern. So so one degree may not seem like much, but we're also seeing some big, but we're seeing some already big effects on our planet. So the Arctic sea ice, last summer Arctic sea ice area was smaller than at any time in the past 1,000 years. We can say that with medium confidence. Almost all of the world's glaciers are retreating synchronously. Synchronously? Synchronously. Synchronously. At the same time. Why would I complicate it? Yes. Since the 1950s, that's unprecedented in at least the last 2,000 years. Sea levels. Now, the sea level globally increased by about 20 centimetres between 1901 and 2018. And it's currently increasing by 3.7 millimetres per year. That sort of rate of increase uh, is going up. So the mean sea level has risen faster since 1900 than over any preceding century in at least the last 3,000 years. So that's going up very quickly. Heat extremes have become more frequent and more intense, while cold extremes have become less frequent and less severe. And rain extremes, the frequency and intensity of heavy precipitation events has increased since the 1950s. So looking towards the future, according to the IPC report, and they've done some modelling. And dear listener, if you listened last week to what we're talking about, the delta strain and modelling of hospitalisations and deaths. In your mind, you should be saying models, models, because it's a difficult thing, creating models and having any confidence in what they, what they say. But we've got to do it. It's the only thing we've got, isn't it? So what they've done, a bit like with the delta strain, where it was sort of like good, medium and bad sort of scenarios, that's what they've done in this report in terms of our carbon emissions. They basically had five different scenarios, sort of too bad, too good and one in between. And looking at what might happen to our climate depending on which of the scenarios. So in terms of these scenarios, the, the best of them assumed that we would get to net zero emissions shortly after 2050 and that we would actually enter negative territory slightly, sort of negative over the next 50 years. And actually, I should put this one up on the screen. Let me do that. So put that up on the screen. So that's the best I can – oh, actually, and I'll put that on full so you can see that. Okay, that's the best I can do. So if you're looking at the screen, the bottom line, aqua blue, net emissions – shortly after 2050 and go into negative emissions for the rest of the century. Second best scenario, we go into zero emissions by about 2075 and then negative after that. 
The middle scenario, which is the one we'll probably concentrate on a fair bit, is where nothing much changes in terms of our emissions until about 2050, where it slowly goes down, but we're still emitting carbon more than we are absorbing it by the end of the century. And then the two worst scenarios, which are probably the way our politics is operating, becoming even more likely, where we increase the carbon that we emit at different levels. So that's the five different scenarios that the IPC looked at, the IPCC looked at, and and let me just get out of that screen and get that one out of the way. And let's see what they had to say. So under, now remember we've already had a one degree increase in temperature since that 1850 to 1900 period. And let's look at what they say would be the likely consequences. Okay, it's up on the screen and at the top of the screen is the best case scenario and the bottom of the screen is the worst case scenario. So in the near term, under all of these scenarios, they reckon we're going to look at at least another half a degree Celsius increase over the next 20 years. In terms of by the end of the century, 2100, under the best case scenario, we're still going to look at another sort of half a degree of increase in temperature from what we've already had. And under the worst case scenario, another three and a half degrees. And under the middle scenario, another degree, 1.7 on average. These are all guesstimates, the statistical ranges, but, but even on the best estimate, we're looking at by the end of the century, another half a degree, possibly another, and on the worst case, another three and a half degrees. And so that's their estimate of what's likely to happen in terms of oh, that, temperatures. That's best case. Best case was the top one, yes. Another half no, a no, degree. No. But, but best case of our worst emissions, 4.4. Uh, it could yeah. be as bad as... Uh, that was best estimate. Oh, um, best estimate, sorry. Yeah, yeah. so, so it it's could, halfway could between... could be as high as 5.7. Correct. Anywhere between 3.3 to 5.7, yeah. So, yeah, that's what the IPCC is saying that we're looking at. And you'd have to think, based on current policies around the world, we're looking at at least the medium to worst case scenarios, at least another one or two degrees, or at least another two to three degrees is on the cards, isn't it? So let me get rid of that off there and come back to it. Okay, so, so really what are we looking at? It's virtually certain that the land surface will continue to warm more than the ocean surface, likely 1.4 to 1.7 times more. It's virtually certain that the Arctic will continue to warm more than global surface temperature. Very likely heavy precipitation events will intensify and become more frequent. And there's a chart I'll show up. It'll be in the notes basically saying the sorts of things that are normally 10-year events in terms of precipitation will become five-year events and even more intense. And 50-year events and others will just become more commonplace. So these major storm systems, particularly in the northern hemisphere, it seems, Joe, they just the way the, the with that the way the climate is operating, it seems particularly to affecting the northern hemisphere. Just anecdotally, in my view, compared to the rest of you know the southern hemisphere. What I'm hearing is I'll probably retire back to the UK then. Yeah, you'll probably retire. Well, 
Back to the UK. Back, yeah, yeah. Why is that? Yeah, because then because then it'll have an Australian-like climate. <laughs> well, my wife visited her niece in Ireland and had trouble because there was a hurricane there. Like, you never hear of hurricanes in Ireland, do you? But that's the other thing you get, Joe, is if you want Australian climate, you'll get bushfires yeah. and hurricanes as well. You want that? <laughs> okay. One that interests me as well is sea level. So let me put the sea level one up. So... Under the, under the medium case scenario, we're looking at, by the end of the century, a, an increase in sea level of about 0.75 of a metre. That's under the medium case scenario. Under the best case scenario, we're looking at half a metre. And under the worst case, we're looking at nearly a metre, probably about... 0.85. That's increase in sea level by 2100. <coughs> I live in Queensland. Well, we all live on the coast, nearly all of us in Australia, don't we? And how many places can you think of that would be in deep trouble if there's a 0.75 of a metre increase in the sea level? Like by the end of the century, that is going to cause a lot of problems, not only in Australia, but around the world. Joe, that's one of the biggest impacts, I think. Besides the storms that will ravage places, this sea level one is going to be a real kicker. Yeah, well, of course, if you're Peter Dutton, you joke about that. Right. To your mates in front of a microphone, don't you? Yeah, does he? That's what he's been doing. Yeah. And if this continues, the sorts of things that could happen in the centuries later are too scary to contemplate. Yeah, I mean, this concern about a lot of the Pacific islands that are built on coral atolls because even now, the slightest storm, the storm surges are going across the islands yes. and the islands are getting inundated. If they get another half metre, a lot of the islands are literally just above sea level. Yes. And we've got those areas like Louisiana in America and that that are just built on swamps, uh, reclaimed land. So they're in enormous trouble if sea temperatures rise. So, so that's the kind of nutshell breakdown that I wanted to give on climate change was where we stand. So let's go through some of the... Joe, do you want to add anything? before? I thought we might go through some of the comments and see what people are saying. Unless you want to add anything of your knowledge of climate change, including cat sneezing to the mix before we do that. I can't think of anything offhand. Okay. So I'll just start at the most recent. Tom, the warehouse guy. China is responsible for around 25 to 28% of all emissions. Let me put it up on the screen, actually. The next highest is the US at 11%. Climate change is another failure of international law, no enforceability. There's, mm. there's an interesting debate because the BRICS countries, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, they didn't go through the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And, and they argue that the first world, so Europe and the States, went through the Industrial Revolution, created a lot of pollution at that time. Yep. So we've had our chance to pollute with greenhouse gases, and they need their chance to leap forward their industry to build up their economy mm. to the same level as Europe and the States have, and therefore the West should be reducing their emissions first, allowing India and China 
a bit of leeway on their pollution before we start becoming heavy-handed in emissions trading. It sounds a fair enough argument. Plus, we've just outsourced our, our carbon emissions to a developing country because they're making <laughs> all the stuff. So that's what happens when you, when you make stuff, isn't it, to some extent? It's, it's, some of that manufacturing would be part of the problem. But, but in terms of, you know, they're building – I mean, cement causes – is a big factor in terms of global warming and, well, when you've had dirt roads and mud huts and you start creating skyscrapers and freeways, you end up using lots of cement. And I think it's a strong argument to say, well, you guys had the chance to industrialise. What, what do you, we just don't get the chance now? Or how come you got a free ride, caused the problem and now we're all in the same boat together? Like, I think it's actually a legitimate argument. Tom, the warehouse guy, do you have any sympathy for developing countries? Do you think perhaps the developed countries, having done their fair share of polluting and moved on, maybe should have harsher restrictions on them now as a result? What do you think, Tom, the warehouse guy? What else we got here? Dire Straits says, an upside, I'll get ocean views at my house. <laughs> and uh, getting in will be fine. You just need a tinny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just working my way back through time here. That was Andrew talking about fresh water is lighter than salt water, but I don't know how it affects ocean currents. Blah, blah. Let me see. Harry and Financially Solvent says, This is great. Now we can swim any day in September. Actually, I wonder if this has got anything to do with the stingers coming down. Normally in Queensland, the stingers were just a sort of a North Queensland phenomena in terms of you can't swim in the summer in the summer in North Queensland because there's just too many stingers and they're finding that Irukandji was found off Fraser Island last summer, I think. And I thought it was a couple of years ago, but yeah. yes. So that is one of the problems hearing and financially solvent is maybe I won't be able to swim on the Gold Coast in summer because of goddamn stingers. So that is another problem. Let me see what else we got here. Andrew says, if the science around the cause of climate change won't change some minds, what about just planning for the consequences, e.g. increased climate refugees, water, wars, etc.? So, Well, Honest Government ads have alleged that the Liberals have put people in both CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology, who have refused, uh, the, the higher levels have refused to allow the words climate change in some of the reports. And I believe Trump banned any planning for sea level rise. Right. Yep. So, so there has actually been a pushback against planning for climate change mm. from science-denying governments. Yeah. Shall we bag religion while we're at it? I mean, one of the problems is that, you know. Oh, it's the end times. Yes. Jesus is going to come and save us. It yes. doesn't matter. That's right. That's one of the things. If you believe that the rapture is imminent, that the end times are near, then it's like, well, why, why bother with all this sort of stuff? Like, why, why put ourselves through pain now? Because we're all out of here in the next 10 or 20 years when the rapture comes. This is one of the problems with with this uh, sort of religious belief. Like, it, we're not joking here. This actually has an effect on public policy mm -hmm. if your leaders believe in these sorts of things. So, yeah, I don't know. If, if you can't change minds, it makes it harder to get the right people in, 
power to make the policies. So you're pushing it against the flow. Although if the biggest if the biggest and most vocal opponent to climate change acceptance has changed their minds, it will be mm. interesting to see what impact that has. Yes. And Murdoch newspapers is sort of what you're thinking of when you're saying that. Well, all of the Murdoch press, so Fox mm. News, particularly in the States. Mm. Yep. Andrew said in the chat room, as the number of people accepting climate change increases, even Murdoch must realise denier views will cause people to turn him off. Maybe. Maybe that's why he's done it. Um, certainly a lot of the... Maybe not the nationals themselves, but a lot of their electorate, the farmers, mm. have seen the change and are becoming less and less enamoured. And I believe, who was the doctor in inner Sydney, the female doctor who won a seat? Yeah, former president of the AMA. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I can't remember her um, name off the top of my head. She, she was a former Liberal member and she jumped mm. ship because of climate change. Yeah. So, so, so there were a lot of Conservatives who said, you know, I'm, I'm very much a liberal through and through, mm. but your policy on climate change just I cannot support. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier on, Tom said, evening all, it would be good to hear your thoughts on Al Gore and his work early on with global warming and an inconvenient truth. A lot of people get global warming and climate change confused. I guess one of the problems with this is that these sorts of issues have become so tribal, whether it's climate change vaccinations, whatever, putting a politician as the front man for this is probably not a good idea because people will just immediately reject him because they know what tribe he is and they won't even listen. He might be somebody who's more neutral would be a better front man for this. It certainly did contribute to the polarisation. The other thing, according to the UQ course that, that very much led to it, was initially there was talk about a, a tax, and the right wing in politics is anti-tax. Yes. And that politicised the, the whole pushback of we don't want yet another tax interfering with our business led to the rejection of the science that was the reason for the tax. Mm. So rather than just arguing about... A price on carbon is actually a very right-wing way. Yeah, let the markets decide. And yet it was turned into a, a cudgel. Yep. It, it was turned into a tax and it wasn't. It was a price on carbon that we had. Yeah. I think uh, one of the topics we'll do over the next next time we get onto this will be what policies have been proposed and how these um, carbon taxes and other things have, you know, what was proposed and how they would work and what, what is a good system? So can't get into What's that. What's a brilliant system mm -hmm. is basically everybody bidding on how much carbon they'll save if you pay them money and then paying money and not checking how much carbon they've actually no, made. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah well, what could go wrong with that? Yeah, yeah. Surely that couldn't happen, paying people money like that. Surely, yeah. Yeah. I don't know enough about it, but I guess what you're saying is that's what we've done and, yeah. We'll, it is what we've done. Yeah. No surprise, is it? All right, in the chat room, I think I've covered most of the ones that were there. You had your own little private jokes going in there at different points, which I can't go into. If you've got anything else, be quick because we're about to finish up with this one as our little introductory one on climate change. And 
If you've got any other ideas that you'd like explored on this topic, give us a buzz, send us a message, let me know. Joe, you're not around next week. You've got something on. Yeah, it looks like I'm going for a little trip up to the beach again. Right. They don't have internet up there. Driving around central Queensland. I can probably jump in from the cabin. I have no idea what the quality will be like. (laughs) Okay. It might be just Shay and myself. We've got lots to talk about. There's been a lot of things that have happened over the last week, so... Lots of good stuff to talk about next week with the panel. Might be just myself and Shay. And uh, yeah, so hope you enjoyed this episode on climate change. Short and sweet, but a good little intro. And we'll be back next week with something else. Bye for now.